Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. So what happens when you have a hugely successful crowdfunding campaign for a piece of hardware? And ultimately, that hardware doesn't meet yours or your backers' expectations. You can throw your hands up and try to get out all your shipments to your backers and hopefully just get through without running out of money. Or you could go back to the drawing board and create an entirely new product. That's what Smart Lock Startup Lockertron did. And I talked to their CEO, Cameron Robinson, in this episode of The Smart Home Show. Hey everyone, this is Mike Wolf with The Smart Home Show. When I said I was going to ramp up production and get more smart home shows out, I meant it. And as you can guess, I think this is the third day in a row. And this is one I actually wasn't expecting to do this week, but I wanted to catch up with Cameron Robertson, the CEO of Lockatron, because as you may or may not know if you're a smart home enthusiast, they announced a new smart lock yesterday called the Bolt. And this is really interesting. I mean, the news about this is really interesting in that they decided to do an entirely new smart lock that didn't include Wi-Fi. And... You may or may not know if you're familiar with Lockatron that they were really the first smart lock out there that that, that was going to use Wi-Fi um, in, a, in a big way, uh, at least a consumer-grade smart lock. They announced this in 2012. They did a crowdfunding campaign, and they ultimately started shipping. But, you know, they were late. You know, TechCrunch started writing stories about them and why they're late. And, and they're having issues with the Wi-Fi, among a few other things. Um, they decided also to make a big change and include a lot fully realized lock that included a new deadbolt and everything in the mechanism rather than an overlay lock. So it's a pretty fascinating story in my opinion. And maybe it's a little bit nerdy, but I think it's a fascinating story because part of it is, you know, the journey that a a crowdfunded hardware startup made and some of the decisions that they ultimately had to face and some of the promises they made and, and then making this hard decision in uh, late summer last year to, to totally go back to the drawing board create a new smart lock and then go to their backers and say, Hey, those of you who haven't gotten their lock, you're going to get this. And so we talk about all that. We talk about this journey, you know, what happened, the decision-making process. And so, and Cameron's a really smart guy, sharp guy. So I think you'll enjoy this. If you want to learn more about Lockatron and read the blog post where Cameron writes, you know, about the bolt, just go to Lockatron.com. If you want to listen to more smart home shows, just go to technology.fm. You'll find the smart home show there, or you can look for us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Also, I'll be writing about this development and, and other news at the Smart Home Weekly. So just go to smarthomeweekly.net and you can find my analysis on this in the next few days. Hey, everyone, once again, thanks for listening. And here's my conversation with Cameron Robertson of Lockatron. Hey, well, I'm super happy to have Cameron Robertson, the CEO of Lockatron, on the Smart Home Show. How are you doing, Cameron? Hi. <laughs> Fine. Thanks, Mike. Well, I wanted to catch up with you. We talked before. Uh, it's been a little while, but you had some interesting news yesterday. Uh, can yeah. you sh- share what happened yesterday? <laughs> Definitely. So uh, yesterday we announced Lockatron Bolt, which is uh, our new replacement connected door lock. Um, and basically it lets you you know, lock and unlock your door from your smartphone as well as invite other folks to do the same. And the Bolt was or is a new device that essentially is going to act as a replacement for your original Lockatron that went through the, the crowdfunding and you had actually managed to build 10,000 and ship them out. But you decided to make a big design choice, and and so talk a little bit about that decision. 
Yeah, so so we made a pretty pretty significant shift. So a little bit about the original crowdfunded Lockatron. The crowdfunded Lockatron was designed as a device to go over your existing door lock. Uh, you sort of slid this metal plate in uh, behind what's called the thumb turn, and then you snapped it into place. Uh, so we we took us a long time to ramp up manufacturing. We ran that campaign in October of 2012. We started trickling out units at the end of 2013, but really shipped a few thousand of them in 2014. And uh, what we, we quickly learned about it was, although we had sort of an extensive internal lock library at our office here, we were unable to test Lockatron on a lot of doors which had locks had, that had been discontinued or that had been sort of adjusted or changed through wear and tear. And so the, the operation of the, the crowdfunded Lockatron going over the existing door lock wasn't ideal, uh, usually through calibration we could adjust it to make it work with most locks, but um, sort of had to get a little bit creative there. And then on the other half, we had sort of this massive, massive backlog in demand, tons and tons of orders coming in um, for this product, which we couldn't ship at a reasonable pace and we couldn't manufacture at a reasonable pace. So, you know, we, we basically said this, this isn't making sense. Making people wait two years for a product to arrive is completely unreasonable and, and we've got to figure out a way to solve this. And so you went to a design that actually was where you replaced the full deadbolt? Yes, exactly. So we moved away from something that goes over an existing deadbolt to something that replaced a full deadbolt. And that that took sort of a lot of um, internal discussion and actually reaching out to a number of our backers uh, behind the scenes and asking them about that and why they really wanted it. Um, and so we, we pulled our original set of backers, uh, and it was an opt-in poll. Anybody could participate. And what we found out from that was that actually 70% of our backers own their own home, which really surprised us because we marketed this as something, you know, because it goes over the inside of your door lock. You don't have to change your keys. We marketed it as something for renters, but it turns out our data just matched the standard data that you see in the U.S., which is that, you know, 65 to 70% of folks own their own home. And so that was one of the, the decisions. And the other decision was, you know, we can make it smaller and we can make it more robust if we do this. There's no, you know, worrying about whether or not the underlying lock that you have works and is compatible. And, you know, if is it going to work every single time or will it work for a few months and then fail? Uh, we actually offered a replacement deadbolt for the crowdfunded Lockatron. So you could replace your deadbolt and put Lockatron on, which sounds kind of silly, but it, it turns out that actually 25% of people opted in for that replacement deadbolt. So with, with all of this data together, we said, wow, there's a big segment, segment of folks here who can replace their own door lock. And really sort of getting into the nitty gritty of how hard it is to switch out a, a door lock, it's, it's not that bad. It's, it's between four to six screws. You, you remove the existing door lock and then another four to six screws back, all of which you can do with a pretty standard Phillips head screwdriver. There's no drilling. There's no additional holes on your door. There's no marring your door. And, and it's a much more robust device. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, when you're, when, you're, in there. when you're doing the overlay locks and I haven't tried yours, but you know, I, I've um, played with August and the Dana lock, you have to basically take off the over the overlying lock switch. Um, you have to, I mean, you're not replacing the deadbolt, but you still have to mm-hmm. take some things off. So, I mean, it's just about as complicated as if you were going to replace the deadbolt itself. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's kind of what we saw looking at uh, at a few other folks in the space and and playing around with those products as well. And then, you know, if, uh, some of them have additional calibration steps, and you have to make sure you have the right adapter. And if you don't have the adapter, you have to call support and and sort of on and on down these things. And we said, okay, well, what is the big, big main concern about like I can't switch my door lock? And 
And it turns out it's the key replacement thing for landlords and uh, p- people who, you know, they can't swap out their key. Um, but, you know, we said, okay, this is really interesting. We can actually, you know, from our supplier who we're working with, get what are called different keyways. And this means that we can do what we're calling key match so that if you have, for instance, a quick set lock, we can get you a matching quick set keyway, which you can then get pinned to your existing key if that's really important to you. Um, and this is, this is really unique because no other replacement lock um, sort of on the market will, is able to do this. You can't buy a Schlage or quick set lock and expect it to ever work with a Schlage or quick set key, but in fact, we'll be able to do that. Were there any intellectual property concerns um, around using, you know, kind of replacing the full lock mechanism where any of the big three would say, hey, you know, we, we have, you know, intellectual property around this type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, so I think that um, the, the, there's a few interesting factors here. The, the intellectual property around a lot of that stuff is actually, some of it's timed out and it's pretty old when you look at electronic locks because variants of electronic locks have been around for uh, 20 years. And where you really start to come see what's interesting is it's, it's all coming to the software and the access side. So a really interesting you know, thing that we learned about on the intellectual property side was with, with keypads. Um, we don't have a keypad, but I guess a lot of the locks on the market you know, you have to both enter in a number and then after entering a number, press a button on the keypad so that because someone owns the the intellectual property of you enter a number and it just automatically unlocks. And <laughs> and so there, there's there's so much of this type of stuff out there. But from what we've seen, the the art extends so far back with just kind of the electronic lock base. And then when you come to this phone stuff, the the larger lock companies have been so slow to move in this space that what we filed ourselves, you know, three years ago is actually sort of kind of at the forefront of that. Talk about the dis- decision to move away from Wi-Fi. I mean, I wrote an article for Forbes about how your your decision to do that is kind of indicative of put some of the potential problems that Wi-Fi could face in ultra low power um, and strict requirements around devices that, you know, need to use a battery for like 12 months. <laughs> so you guys are finding that that was problematic. You couldn't quite get Wi-Fi to be a low enough power draw. Yeah, yeah. And so I would I would say that, you know, we looked at all of this stuff in a very ideal world scenario when we went into it with the crowdfunded Lockatron. We said, okay, we know Wi-Fi is power hungry, but we can restrict that power consumption and we can be really good about turning it on and off and, you know, only doing this in a very conservative fashion. But um, despite that, you know, a few a few things all um, came together and colluded to prevent us from from doing that effectively. So, you know, the the power requirements never quite hit what they were supposed to on the data sheet. And the Wi-Fi, you know, the placement of your router with respect to the house, all of these things we couldn't really predict. And then there are other issues with, you know, the the power of the Wi-Fi signal with respect to Lockatron on the door. And and all of these things meant that in a real world Wi-Fi scenario, not a not an idealized real uh, idealized scenario, it was consuming a lot more power to stay online, even with us, you know, putting the the chip to sleep most of the time. And and so what happens is is that every time it was connecting, for those for you know uh, for some folks, it was just consuming way too much power and running down the battery. Um, and and at the end of the day, it's like, well, we really want that broader, you know, uh, Wi-Fi capability, the ability to sort of control your home remotely and get state state remotely. But 
it just made the most sense to to offer that through a separate component, which is which is why we also launched Bridge um, to accomplish that. I'll talk. I want to talk about Bridge a little bit, but first, um, were you guys trying to use the most advanced low power Wi Fi silicon and, and chips? I mean, because you know. I remember the Wi-Fi community making a big deal about how low-power Wi-Fi would close the gap and ultimately would kind of remove the need for things like Z-Wave and Zigbee, which are developed <laughs> for really ultra-low-power um, use yeah. cases. So, I mean, were you using this advanced stuff? So we were using uh, an Electric Imp module. And so Electric Imp, um, you might be familiar with yep. it, with a few other connected products. I think the uh, Rachio sprinkler system used it and, and some of the Wing stuff or sorry, excuse me, not the wing stuff, the quirky stuff used it. Yep. Um, but so they they did a fantastic job of getting up and running really quickly. And their power consumption was, um, I think, pretty honest in the, in the specs because they were, you know, Wi-Fi guys at Apple. They knew what they were getting into. Um, we didn't quite meet their specs, but, you know, hey, not the, the real world scenario. You look at some of the other chip makers um, who are making these modules, and, and I won't call them out, but they make very aggressive specs that I'm highly skeptical of companies meeting. And and so, you know, we started to look at what does this, this low-power Wi-Fi mean? And it, it's really hard to ferret that out because, you know, th- I'm not aware of routers building in some sort of new Wi-Fi spec. And if that's not the case, then the fundamentals of Wi-Fi are such that it consumes a fair amount of power, which, whichever way you slice it. And so unless you, you're talking about um, an order of magnitude difference from the power consumption that we were seeing, um, it, I, I don't see that as being feasible. And again, I'm not really well versed at this because most of the digging we did on Wi-Fi was two years ago. So you know, since then, yeah, maybe there's stuff emerging that's kind of interesting, but it, my assumption is that some change is going to have to come on the spec level, and then all of a sudden you're going to have to expect that everyone's router has this low-power Wi-Fi capability. Um, you know, I would say that routers do have special what are called PS pull or power save pull modes that allow for theoretically letting devices pull less often and be connected, but in a very low-power mode. Again, when you when you look at a household that has you know, 10, 15 connected devices and all of these things are talking to each other. And then you have a bunch of other stuff going on in the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum, like Bluetooth and, and so forth, uh, microwaves. It's just not realistic to expect that. So, yeah, I think on the spec level, I mean, I know that there was an 802.11, I think it's dot AH, which was, I think their answer for the ultra low power stuff running in kind of a different Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of spectrum, but it seems like they've been quiet on that. And even Qualcomm, who is making a lot of noise about low power Wi-Fi, I don't think they had any conversations about it at CES. And they were, you know, they made the acquisition of Cambridge Silicon Radio, which is a Bluetooth manufacturer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much like you, they've become much more interested in Bluetooth. Um, although you guys had Bluetooth on your original device, and that became yeah. your primary radio air interface um, with the it new did. with the new Bolt. It did, yes, yes. So, I mean, I think I think the the things that happened there are, you know, everyone started to realize, hey, Bluetooth low energy is in all the smartphones, so this is going to work well. And um, we just matured so much with Bluetooth. When we first started working on Bluetooth, it was prior to the announcement of, of the crowdfunding Lockatron. So we started playing around with it in 2011, right after we heard about it in the iPhone 4S, which was essentially the first mass consumer Bluetooth low energy product available. And we said, hey, what's this? This yeah, looks really yeah. cool. And it was a steep, steep learning curve. And now you're looking, you know, three plus years later, 
and it's matured incredibly well. And, you know, Android is finally getting the support it needs. And, you know, I think the, the biggest, the biggest uh, problem, which everyone's still playing around with is I, I want a generic TCP IP backend for this. I want to be able to, you know, have a Bluetooth router, which just connects this to the web. And, and I think we're going to get there in, in 18 months or so. Yeah. I mean, there has been a huge amount of work in Bluetooth low energy and you're right. I mean, Android has finally come around. Um, you know, as you're probably familiar with Kivo, uh, kind of one of your competitors, they didn't release mm. an Android app until just the last few months because Android was lagging pretty heavily. But, but even now that Android's on, I think, you know, the, the table set for, you know, I think more momentum for Bluetooth low energy. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think that, you know, again, these questions of like, I want all these devices to have, you know, in, in the, I would say that the nerd perspective is every device should have an IP and be addressable. I think we'll get there. And, and I don't know if it'll be BLE that accomplishes it, but it certainly is not feasible, you know, in, in the state of Wi-Fi that we used for that to be workable. So you made a design decision from a overall system architecture perspective to take the Wi-Fi out and put it into a separate bridge device. So you created what you're calling bridge, which is a what I see as a Wi-Fi to Bluetooth bridge. So the the walk talks to the bridge in Bluetooth, and then uh, via Wi-Fi talks to the router and gets out on the internet, correct? Exactly. Yep, yep. It's a straightforward little device that essentially acts as a, as a little relay. And and it goes ahead and it gives it brings back all of those capabilities. And, and you, know, and the you can plug it in. You can have it plugged in. <laughs> don't have to worry yes, about battery power. Exactly. <laughs> and as a result, we, we don't have to sleep the, the connection at all. So that means that bridge is relatively instantaneous. Um, you know, it still needs to do a little bit of negotiation every time it connects. But, you know, we're talking a couple of seconds versus, you know, minutes of time waiting for a remote command to go through, which, you know, at first when we started doing the crowdfunded Lockatron, we said, OK, if a command takes you know, five minutes to go through, that's not so bad. But to even hit the three months that we're hitting now, which is still below the target we had, um, we had to sleep it for 30 minutes at a time. Um, and, and there's just a lot of other factors for why that was case. But yeah, really, really tricky. Talk about the, the what you went through over the past year. Because, you know, I, I had talked to you for my SmartWalk report, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. in, I think it was early 2014. Not long after that, you know, TechCrunch had their, uh, this big post saying, what's going <laughs> up with, what's going on with Lockertron? And, you know, when, Tech, yeah. you know, when TechCrunch writes a post about you about your product being late, I don't know if you had a bad day, but I thought maybe Cameron's having a bad day. But, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I've watched a lot of... Um, crowdfunding campaigns and i don't you guys weren't you were a little bit different in that you weren't living on um uh on on kickstarter you weren't living on indiegogo where there's a comment section <laughs> so in yeah. that respect is good because uh, you know watching some of these guys who are like a year late the, the comment sections get kind of irate but you guys were starting to trickle stuff out but you still had the blogs writing uh, stuff like TechCrunch was writing so how was how was it about that time and how was the last year or so yeah i mean the, you know I, I would say I think that a lot of that that frustration that folks have is not unwarranted at all. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I think that you know we we didn't set reasonable expectations up front and and we didn't know what we were getting into with a lot of this stuff and that's that's not a fair excuse. You know we should have we should have known better so to speak. But um, we certainly learned a lot from from all of those experiences and 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 it was. It was every single thing along the way. It was the hardware wasn't working in 2013, and we couldn't manufacture it well. And then we we were still held up in manufacturing in 2014. And you know there are all these embedded challenges and so forth. And you know the the embedded design of the crowdfunded Lockatron was 
was grossly complex compared to what it should have been. And, and so, you know, on and on and down sort of the, the line there. And we, we just got to this point in 2014 where we said, look, making people wait longer and longer for this, if we can't manufacture in volume, doesn't make sense. And, and you know, we're missing the, the opportunity. Folks really want this product. The demand is there. We've got to make something that's, you know, that we can ship. And then beyond that, we said, well, let's, let's fix a couple of these problems, which are, you know, the Wi-Fi didn't pan out like we hoped it would. Um, the, you know, it turns out that replacing your door lock entirely with something more robust is probably not that hard to do and is, is a better idea if you want something that's going to work on your door for a decade. Um, you know, why don't we, why don't we reevaluate all these things? So, yeah, I would say the, the last two years have been uh, <laughs> challenging for sure. Um, but, but always, you know, I, I think that, yeah, you, we, we, we always want to like keep on speaking with backers. We, we tried to post updates every single two weeks, um, as to what we're doing and working on. And it's, it's tricky. Uh, you know, it's like if we had all the, the resources in the world, I would say, yeah, you know, redo it and go back and ship everyone the new thing. You know, it's it's um I've I've watched a lot of crowdfunding hardware campaigns and um and it it is tough and I think a lot of, of uh, creators go into this idea with with over optimistic expectations of what they can do with creating a new piece of hardware and that and ultimately ends that ends up being their downfall. Now there's one end of the, one of the end of the spectrum is people who have literally no hardware experience and that's not not saying that's you and then there's people who are truly experienced in hardware and even then. They sometimes have issues, so um, you you probably have learned a ton. And I actually do commend you because you guys actually went back to the drawing board, redid it, and you're actually getting the product out, which oftentimes people don't. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny that the crowdfunded Lockatron was actually our Gen Two Lockatron. We had shipped a hand built Lockatron sure. back in 2011, but it was really sort of this this mass manufacturing adventure that we learned from. the The thing is that the crowdfunded Lockatron, we still pulled off a few technical feats that were. You know, it's funny. If if something in hardware works ninety percent, it may as well not work at all. And we had a lot of these really hard things that worked ninety percent. So we had this knock sensor feature where someone would knock at your door and we could sense it. A lot of people thought that was done with an accelerometer, but it wasn't. We we did it with a really interesting special piezo sensor, and we designed a whole circuit for it, and it worked for a lot of people. But then there was this ten percent of folks who are like, well, you know, my door is really well fit and it doesn't you know trigger the knock sensor or oh it's triggering all the time and it's lowering my battery life and and it's like well it was it was a really you know difficult thing to to make and it's cool that it worked as well as it did but it wasn't you know it wasn't uh for <laughs> working well for everyone so so we we took that out um but th- there's a there's a list of those things where we took on <laughs> yeah. very ambitious things and some of them we accomplished and some of them we got close and some of them you know, we were far off the mark like like the Wi-Fi, but um, definitely it, it was a very interesting platform to test a lot of these ideas in, in in the connected lock space. And you went to your backers and said, hey, here's the deal. We're going to create an entirely new lock. Um, and those of you who haven't gotten your lock yet, are you okay with getting the bolt? Um, is that is that kind of how it went? Uh, I mean, we, we spoke to a few backers behind the scenes. But we, we got into this, this conundrum where we said, okay, well, we could announce this thing and ask everyone uh, if they want it early on. But here's the problem. If we start making commitments today and we haven't lined up the production timeline, we haven't spoken to the manufacturer, we don't know how long all this stuff is going to take, we're just going to be making you know, more promises that we don't actually know the, the real answer to. So we spent 
um, sort of from when we did, made this decision last fall, a few months getting all of our ducks in a row to say, yes, we can make this. Yes, we're solving these problems. Yes, the circuit board is designed and checking all of those boxes. And so we spoke to a few backers um, confidentially at the end of last year. But, uh, you know, we were very, very concerned about just saying to everyone, hey, we've got this new great idea. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> when, did you, when did you decide to try to build an entirely new lock, build the bolt? And then it sounds like you made the decision to press the go button last fall, at least after a few, some conversations. But did you start designing this much earlier? Um, we started talking about it. In August of last year, okay. we were starting looking at this stuff and we said, ah, this is really, you know, we're getting this feedback from the product, but we didn't really press go until November. And that's, that's sort of actually when we, we also stopped shipping the, the existing Lockatron. And those, those two weren't really necessarily intentional. The crowdfunded Lockatron was still so difficult to build. We, we did um, the initial metal and plastic components in China and then final assembly here stateside. And it turns out the final assembly stateside was always more difficult for us to deal with than, than the, <laughs> the Chinese part. But both, par both parts had their issues. So, we yeah, we basically pulled the trigger um, you know, at the end of last year. And, and it wasn't like you know, it, was, it was really taking, taking us away from the other stuff. The, the great thing is, is that the, the development of the apps and the web stuff and the back end – all of that gets ported directly into the new device. So, you know, our sense feature, which is where you walk up to the door and it automatically unlocks for you, um, that's going to be immediately available from, from day one with Bolt. And what lessons did you take from the difficulty of manufacturing an assembly? And what did you change in the Bolt that may, is making it a much easier proposition? From day one, we, we approached the problem of we have to get something to our backers as quickly as possible. We can't, we can't sit around and go through an 18-month design process and say, well, let's just design from scratch and go into CAD and all these other things. And so we actually we, we started working with our manufacturer very, very early on. And we, we started the design from a manufacturing per first perspective of how can we build something that's robust? How can we build something which is tested? And, and get it out the door quickly. And so I think that would be the biggest takeaway that I would have when you, when you look at stuff is you, the partnership that you build with whoever makes the device at the end of the day ultimately can make or break you. And so getting that going as early in the design process as possible is absolutely critical um, because, you know, making one of something is great, but you have to make 10,000 of something. You have to make 100,000 of something. So you know, you want to have the right partner to accomplish that. And, and we learned a phenomenal amount about how to identify the right manufacturer for what you're building. Um, you know, it turns out we used a, a company that was really good for making power tools in China for the crowdfunded Lockatron. And we thought, oh, power tool spin, this makes sense. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the problem is that they aren't used to consumer grade finishes and they aren't used to gear trains. Typically, a lot of power tools are direct drive. They don't have gear trains in them. And after the fact, after going through a lot of different struggles, people, we, we realized um, that, no, if, you, if you're making something with gears that move, you want to talk to guys who have, A, made toys like RC cars, or B made robots because those have gears in them and they, they're used to making consumer grade finishes. Again, these things are non-intuitive. You'd never think, ah, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a electronic door lock. You know, I'm going to go talk to a company that makes toys. But uh, yeah, you, you learn a lot of these things when you, when you go to China for months at a time. 
And so when you chose your manufacturer f- the first time, was this just a, a matter of you had a relationship or, is, I mean, you, did you do enough research? What, I mean, how did you come to like the realization that, you know, this isn't the right manufacturer? So the, the, we, the mechanical design firm we worked with actually, uh, who helped us out, um, they, they helped us through the RFQ process and, you know, it, the, it's not such a huge impedance mismatch with those guys. Um, it's that they were off the mark fair enough and we were training them on stuff which they didn't have a huge amount of experience on. So, yeah, they helped us with that RFQ selection process. After the fact, you know, one of the one of the big things that I, I've heard and, and I think is true in this space is when you're trying to make something in China, A, you have to, you know, be on the ground a few times there to learn about it. But B... Try to talk to as many folks as possible. There, there are so many factories out there. You know, understand what they've made before. Understand the finishes and the materials. Understand who they sell to. Do they sell to businesses? Do they sell to, you know, industrial purposes? Do they sell to consumers? Um, things like that. Now, what's next for Walkatron? Because you guys have this bolt, and I, I think it's going to be available in. When, when exactly is it available? So we have a preview edition, which we're sort of going to limit the volume on, and that's going to start shipping roughly in March. Okay. And then the production version is, is we're saying, late spring. And we want to be careful to couch that because it might, you know, we're not exactly sure on the month on that. So late spring is, is for when it's generally available. And so you have this device, and you'll be able to ramp up production to much higher volumes than you ever were able to with the Crown Photo Walkertron. So are you now... I would imagine like a couple of years ago, you were having conversations with potential partners and, and maybe some of those have existed. But, you know, when I look at the other walks, I look at a lot of point product makers, they go out and they then get, you know, promiscuous with lots of different ecosystems because they want to be plugged into the eye control world or they want to be plugged into the, the wink world. Are you having all of those conversations now or have they changed since you, you came out with the bolt? Yeah. I mean, so I think that we always want to understand how – the consumers want this device to play in their space. But we're looking at this the same way we did two years ago when nobody cared about this and, and these ecosystems were very different. You know, f- go back to October 2012. Yeah, exactly. Nothing and, was there. And, well, I mean, <laughs> it was. It was, a, f- it was eye control. Yeah, it, it was, was eye control, basically. <laughs> it was Insteon. It was, it was these very old, cool yeah, st- yeah. old standards. But, but so the, the way we see it now is we're, we're open – and, and, and we want to be very open. We have an open API, which is not like, you know, some sort of walled garden where you have to reach out to us to get API access. Anybody can go on there and build something. We have, you know, I think we're closing in on a thousand developers sign up on our developer list. We're, we're very much about, if you want to build it, go ahead. We will, you know, we'll, we'll support you in that. It's well documented. And then beyond that, we want to open up access directly over Bluetooth as well. Um, so to, to enable these types of things now that these these hubs and so forth are finally getting that Bluetooth capability built in. Now, I think that the big thing there is just because we're opening up doesn't mean that every single one of those those devices will integrate us. Um, we're open for them to do that, but uh, you know, it's it we'll, we'll leave it up to them. We'll leave the choice up to to those folks. You know, we're rushing towards partnerships and so forth. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, we're seeing what the consumers are really asking for there and what they really want, and then maybe we'll we'll cherry pick, you know, a couple here and there. But no, no announcements there at the moment. And what about retail and e-tail? Are you guys going to be available beyond your own website within the next, you know, beyond spring? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, retail in some capacity is important. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're looking to to really go crazy there. But the reason why it's important to have some out there, or we believe it's important, is that um, we want consumers to be able to see it and touch it. 
um, in person. And, and so we, we love direct sales. We love selling online. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've done really well with that, but retail makes sense for, for something where people want to touch and interact with the product. doesn't mean blasting out to, you know, 10,000 locations in, in one shot, but, but getting, getting a little bit out there makes sense. And, and that's definitely going to be much later this year. Hey, well, Cameron Robertson uh, of Lockatron, this has been great hearing the story and your journey and and kind of the switch and the decision-making process. I think it's been pretty enlightening. And the, for those people who are thinking about doing hardware crowdfunding, I think this is a great one to listen to. So I appreciate you spending some time with me. Okay. Thanks a lot, Mike. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Cameron talk about what they've gone through over the past year. I think it's a really interesting story. I think people who are looking at making hardware and doing, doing a crowdfunding campaign probably could benefit from listening to this. So I hope that some do. You can find out more about Lockatron and maybe order a Bolt. If you want to get a new smart lock, I think it's going to be $99. He said wider release in June. Just go to Lockatron.com. Again, look for more Smart Home Shows at technology.fm. Look for the Smart Home Show there. If you want to continue the conversation with me on Twitter, just go to Michael Wolf. You'll find me on Twitter. Hey, everyone, once again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>